Welcome to Bible study. It's very good to be with you again. Thank you for tuning in with us. I would like to just thank the panel coming on board again for this uh, wonderful Bible study. And I'll just say welcome to you all. Uh, thanks, Lydia, for coming. And Helen and um, Len. Len, will, uh, he will be our facilitator for this Bible study. And I'll just pass it to him right now. We've been... Um doing a series of studies about preparation for the end times. And this week's study is about worship the Creator, and that's basically taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and verses 6 and 7. But we will be considering the gospel in terms of end times, and with regard to the biblical account of creation and the Creator. The word gospel is translated from the Greek word evangelion, which means good message or good news. The basic meaning of the term gospel is simply an announcement of a good message. The gospel is under attack today, and it cannot be stressed enough how important it is to get the gospel right and understand both the objective aspect of the person and work of Jesus and the subjective dimension of how we benefit from that by faith alone. So to start off, Lydia, would you read the book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6? Then I saw another angel flying in mid-air and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Okay, thank you. Now, there was an adjective used to describe the gospel. What was it? Yes, the eternal gospel. The eternal gospel, and in some versions they put... The everlasting. Everlasting gospel. Same thing. It means... Well, as it says in the text, every nation, tribe and people and so on. Helen, in terms of time and extent, what would you understand the everlasting gospel to mean? Well, I agree with you what you said at the beginning, Lane. You said it was good news. Um, Why is it good news? It's the gospel of the grace of God to save men. And I believe it will continue right through as long as there are men to be saved. Um, So it would be for all time, for all people, and all-encompassing. But I also believe to understand that good news, Len, we need to know Jesus, to look to him and his saving work. We must know Jesus to be saved. Well, it's not a gospel without Jesus, is it? Exactly right. Because without Jesus there's no forgiveness of sins, Mm. and that's not good news because it means we always have to live under the consequences of our own sins. Mm, I read an, an article recently, um, and I ask people that very question when I go around. I say, do you know what the everlasting gospel is? It's interesting to hear the different answers, but I, I read this article that said, it is not enough to simply know him as the lamb or simply as the teacher, Messiah. We must know him as creator, as a leader in the great controversy, as our priest, our tender judge, and finally our mighty king. It takes time to get to know and see him in all his roles, but the longer you watch and meditate upon him, the sweeter and brighter and more wonderful he becomes. That's the everlasting gospel. Yes. Mm. 
the most important thing for us, I guess, is the fact that he is the saviour. Absolutely. But of course, Christ has served many functions and he has many names, just like, say, for example, you could be called Helen and your children would call you mum and your husband, which you don't have anymore, would have called you my love or something like mm -hmm. that. So you have many names, but... It's many facets, isn't it? That's right, Can and like, mm. what you've said there is quite correct about mm. Christ. Panel, would the gospel be applicable to living, say, 4,000 years ago? I think the first word that comes into my head is absolutely. It applies to all people that have lived on this earth and that will live on this earth. Sadly, um, the Bible also makes a statement that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all encompasses everybody, whether they be dead or living, you know, from the past, in the future or in the present. Yeah. yeah. So I believe that it is applicable to people that are living today, but also those that lived 4,000 years ago. All right. Because if it didn't apply to them, um, they would have no hope of eternal life. Exactly right. Any other comments there, panel? All right. Lydia, what particular time prophecy... Does the spreading of the gospel apply to? Now, there's a, it's interesting. There's a text in Matthew 24, verse 14. It's, one of a, it's a prophecy that concerns the spreading of the gospel. What does it say? Yes, in Matthew 24, 14, it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, Matthew chapter 24, as we uh, talked about last week, is much to do with the signs of Jesus' coming, and also some of those signs refer to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But this particular prophecy that Lydia read applies to a particular time, which is... The end of the world. Yes. That'll be the last thing that happens before the end of the world. Now, it's going on now, but it's going to continue to go on until Jesus comes. Helen, to whom has the commission to share the gospel been given? Well, there's a, a text in Matthew 28, verse 19. I'm reading from the, uh, reading from the King James Version. Uh, it tells us, it says, Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It says, Go ye. That's personal. That's, that's the followers of Christ. That's us, God's people. You I can't guess, do it by proxy. No. No, no you personal. can't do it by proxy. Mm -hmm. It has to be involving each person who accepts Christ's um, uh, substitution on their behalf. Maybe you've been wondering, is there anyone who does not need the gospel? That is, the good news of what God has done for fallen mankind. Well, I'm going to read to you from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22. I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. And this verse says, But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In view of the fact that every single person in the world has sinned, 
They need the gospel. Whether they accept the gospel or not is another thing. But we need the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Lydia, you've got something to share with us there. Would you mind sharing that? The universality of sin explains the universality of our mission and calling every tribe, every nation, thang and people has done wrong, has violated God's law and has been confined under sin. Adam's fall in Eden has impacted every human being. No nation or tribe or people has been immune. We all face the the immediate consequences of sin and without a remedy we all would face the ultimate consequence eternal death but that remedy of course has been provided the life death and resurrection and heavenly sanctuary ministry of jesus who is the only solution to the sin problem Everyone needs to know the great hope of what God has offered them in Jesus Christ. What you said there was that everyone needs to know. We couldn't actually say everyone wants to know. Everyone needs to know, but whether they accept it or not is another thing. Now, we've been talking about the gospel, the everlasting gospel. Panel, in a nutshell in abbreviated form. Could you please explain what the gospel is? The gospel is the good news that, as you said before, everyone needs to be forgiven, to be received by Jesus and uh, receive also eternal life. Okay. Restored in in God, restored in Jesus. Yes. Because we are fallen now, we are living in sin, We, we are sinful. Yeah, let me just add as well that when man sinned, there was a separation straight away from God. Prior to the sin, um, God had a face-to-face a relationship with Adam and Eve. And when the fall came, sadly, that changed. Sin separates us from God. And Jesus came to earth to um, be the gap, if you like, to provide himself as a substitute for our sins, that we can be forgiven. We need to have faith in him that he will forgive us. And he died on the cross so he could do that and provide us with forgiveness. And then, of course, it restores our right relationship with God. Mm. And that's good news. It is. Mm. It is. So in order to have this forgiveness that the gospel proclaims, how many hours a week must you work or how much should you pay to receive the benefits of the gospel? Well, I think some people then, they believe that they have to earn it. Um, I personally believe that we can't add to what Christ did on the cross. We cannot take away from it. His was a perfect sacrifice. So it is a gift. I don't believe that we can work for it. We can't earn it. Um, We can't do penance to get it. It is a gift, and we need to accept that gift in faith. You know, a lot of people don't understand this. Some people who worship other gods from different pagan religions and others think you've got to do stuff in order to win the favour of God. You've got to make sacrifices. You've got to pray so many or say so many this is or that or turn prayer wheels. I was in China once. I've actually been to China four times and I was walking around a cultural park one day 
and I came across this huge Buddha statue. It was actually carved out of a small mountain, and on the trees were all these little red ribbons. And I was wondering what on earth those red ribbons are doing on a tree with green leaves. And what it was that people believed if they came there and they paid something to the the priest who was hanging around in that area, they could buy a ribbon and hang that on the tree and each time it flutters in the wind it says a prayer for them. The gospel's not like that. God gives us forgiveness as a gift which cost him. Now, something very interesting happened at the time when Jesus was crucified, where the gospel applies. Helen, would you like to tell us what this is all about? And readers, uh, sorry, listeners, you can read this in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43, if you have your Bibles. Well, let's read that first before I give you the answer to it. Then from Scripture, Luke 23, 42 to 43, reading again from the King James Version, says here, And he said unto Jesus, and that he, of course, is the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Interesting text that. Len, very interesting. Here we've got two thieves, uh, Jesus in the middle. We've got one who was repentant and forgiven, one who believed on Jesus, the other didn't. One received a promise of eternal life and the other one sadly didn't. You know, I guess it shows us a couple of lessons too. It's not too late to turn to God while we're still alive, isn't it? Mm. You know, and I thought that was interesting. And it was more inspiring to me to see the faith of that man. He alone saw beyond that present shame of the cross to the coming glory of the everlasting gospel. Now, there's something very interesting there, which a lot of people get mixed up. Because when you read the verses, you'll notice it says, I say unto you, today... And there's a comma after the word today. So I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now other people read this, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's a question. When did that repentant thief go to paradise or receive paradise? Well, let me just state too, um, Lynn, you've just read out from one version in the King James. It actually has the comma after I say unto thee, comma, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that's why people get that idea. Remember when the Bible was originally written, it didn't have all that punctuation, what have you in it. And so, you know, if we look into this a little bit closer, we can see that the thief got the promise, didn't he? Yes. He got that promise. But did he go to paradise that day? Well, I don't believe so. No. Well, can you uh, give some evidence of the fact of your belief? Well, yeah. If we look at that, t some people put it in the punctuation because it says, as, it, as we just read, but and people say it should read, Verily I say unto thee today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. But I just want to go away from that and just say, if you look at that, Jesus says, Shalt thou be with me in paradise today? Did Jesus go to paradise that that actual day, Len? 
No, he didn't. No, he didn't. According to scripture, he did not. He went into the grave and he rose on the third day, remember? So he didn't actually go into paradise that day. So how could the thief have been with him in paradise that day? Well, he couldn't. Now, no. how do we know that Jesus didn't go to paradise early Sunday morning? Well, when we read the scripture, and I think it's in John, um, there's a text there, and it shows us that um, he hadn't yet ascended to heaven when Mary, he met Mary in the garden. Yes. And he said, I haven't yet ascended. And then there was a time when he saw his disciples and he was he was on this earth. And then, of course, they actually witnessed him going and ascending into heaven. That's right. We know that Jesus hadn't gone to heaven because he said to Mary, touch me not, for I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. But what a fantastic promise for that thief, though. Oh, you know, to, to go to his death realizing that he had that promise. He had an assurity from Jesus himself. And, not, and we've got that same assurity, Len. It's not just thief, just, is it? No. Anybody who accepts the gospel, receives the, the forgiveness that Jesus has offered, whether they live or die, they still have that promise. If they're faithful they will uh, receive eternal life. Absolutely. Now, earlier we read Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Lydia, would you read verse 7 as well? And then I want to, we'll make a statement. You read it first and then we'll go on from there. The angel said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay, now this is a universal message. This is to go to the whole world, as it says in verse 6, to every, every nation, tribe, language and people, everyone, past, present, even future. Yes. There are four parts to this message in as recorded in verse 7. What are those four parts? The four parts, first um, is fear God. Yeah. Second is give him the God, give, give God glory. Yeah. The third one is about the judgment. The judgment has come. Mm -hmm. And the fourth one is to worship him, the creator, the only one creator. Okay. Now, I'm quite aware of the fact that in modern usage the word fear means to be very afraid of. Helen, in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 12, it talks about Abraham and how he feared God. Could you read that verse and then please explain it for us? Okay. Just before I do, though, Len, I was looking up the word fear God and it's the Greek word I don't know quite how you pronounce it, for B-O. Actually, it says to fear or to reverence. It's used here not in a sense of being afraid of God, but in the sense of coming to him with reverence and awe, a full surrender to his will. It conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to God, which brings me to that text you just asked me to read in Genesis 22:12, and it's a story about Abraham. And uh, it comes to the point where Abraham actually took his son up the mountain as God requested him to do so. And he was about to um, sacrifice his son. And 
he heard this voice saying, and he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So here we have Abraham obeying and trusting God completely. And um, I think this is what, what we're talking about here, showing reverence to God. So fear doesn't necessarily mean being afraid of. Now, when you read the book of Job panel, in Job chapter 1 and verse 9, it talks about Job fearing God. How did Job fear God? I'd like to answer that if I may. I love reading the first chapter of Job because when you go on further from that actual verse, then we come to verse 16. And it says, while he was yet speaking, there came another. In other words, he had heard of some tribulation had come, and, and that was his children and, uh, and the oxen, what have you. And it goes on in verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another. So he had all these calamities. But to me, that verse you read or you were talking about is summed up in verse 20. It said, then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and uh, as soon as you you just mentioned job I, I come back to that every time it's just amazing that to me this verifies verse 9 when it says doth job fear god for not no job had the, job had this amazing relationship with god and he reverenced god he um he feared him in the right way didn't he he honored god he committed himself to god and he obeyed him yes legend about Job, the Lord God knew Job so well. He recognized, I mean, God recognized in Job his servant. And uh, he just mentioned when he had a, a conversation with the devil, and God said to him, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. So blameless, blameless means complete, means full of integrity, upright. Upright, it's, it means straight, walking on a straight path. It means steady in, in his belief. And he feared God in the way that he honored God and loved God in, in all his life, in whatever he did, in, in all his actions and deeds, and he shunned evil. So it means this, his fear of God was reverence to God, okay. was worshipping God. I had a very interesting experience in my last year in high school, and I just have to tell you a little story here. I grew up in the country, and the school I attended was only went up to third year in high school. And so I had to go away and board, and I went to another town. Well, that was up in the Adelaide Hills. And in the wintertime, it gets pretty cool up in the Adelaide Hills. Like, so cool that when there's frost on the grass and you walk on the grass, the grass actually cracks under your feet. That's how cold it was. Mm. So I would ride my bicycle to school. It wasn't that far, about a kilometre from where I was boarding. And... Because it was so freezing cold, and back in those days, the school had some wood heaters. 
to warm up the classrooms and the principal's office, I might add. And the school had a wood heap and an axe. And sometimes some other lad, lads and myself, we would go and chop wood. Not because we were so publicly minded, but because we wanted to warm up. And so quite often in the winter time, I would be chopping, splitting wood rather than chopping it. Chopping means to cut across the grain. Splitting means cutting it with the grain. And we would warm up and that was really good. The principal of that school was a very well-respected principal. I guess a lot of people feared him in the sense that they were a bit scared of him. And I probably was a little bit. Anyhow, toward the end of the year, I was in class and there was a message came through. The principal wanted to see me. So I went up to the office thinking of all the things he might want to see me about. Not that I was a bad or a naughty student at all. And he greeted me and said, Len, um, the school wants to give you a book. Would you go into the next room and choose a book? I thought, well, what on earth? What have I done? So I chose a book. It was all about inventors and inventions, and I enjoyed reading it. And then later on, when I received the book at the end of the year, it had a little note in the front to Len, gave my surname, for service to the school. Now, I wasn't afraid in the sense of the principal, but I respected him. And this is what Job and Abraham and others d did. Now, when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and verse 13, there's a, a little phrase there that's connected with the term fearing God. Lydia, could you read Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13? Yes, it says Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. I think in uh, the idea of fearing God in this passage is linked to obeying him. Uh, so when we obey God, when we do what is right, we bring glory to him. Although it is often said that to fear God is to be in awe of God and to reverence Him, it should go deeper than that. So we are fallen beings, we are sinners, so fallen beings who deserve death. So who has, hasn't at moments faced the startling realization of the evil of their deeds and what they would deserve of the hands of a just and righteous God for those deeds? But this is the fear of God. And uh, also, it is the fear that drives us first to the cross for forgiveness and second to claim the power of God to cleanse us from the evil. So, if it were not for the cross, we'd cause us to lose our souls. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 uh, told us to whom this message goes. And then verse 7 has these separate parts in it. We've been talking about fearing God, and I think that really means to take God into account in everything in our lives. Of course, a lot of people around these days who don't fear God, even I heard some children the other day use that horrible expression, oh my God, I think that's not fearing God, I think that's taking God's name in vain. 
Well, we're about to go to a new section of what Revelation 14 verse 7 says. We're going to have a little break and go on straight afterwards. Welcome back to our Bible study group time. Just so I could put a little promo in here, 
Um, if you'd like to join a group Bible study rather than just sitting and listening on the radio, then every Saturday morning at Adventist churches all over the country, you can join in with them and they have one, usually starting around about 9.30 on a Saturday morning, although it will be worthwhile to check out the times because some churches do have different times. Here in Adelaide, there are a number of churches where you could attend, but if I could just point out three of them. Down in the south of Adelaide, there's a, ch- a larger church called Morfitt Vale on Pimpala Road, and they start at 9.30 in the morning. In the city, in the CBD on Angus Street, there is Adelaide City Church, and they also start at 9.30 in the morning. And perhaps towards the north in Paravista, they start at 10, but their Bible discussion starts around about half past 11. And you'd be welcome to join and sort of put some faces to the discussion. Very glad to see you as you come along. Now we've been talking about fearing God. The second aspect of the message that's to go to the world in the end of time is giving glory to God. Now we've got to try to understand what this really means. And there's a verse in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 which partially explains it. The verse says, In the same way, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So giving glory to God really revolves around a lifestyle where we share the gospel message, where we do good works, where we demonstrate God's goodness and we recognise his sovereignty. Helen, you've got something to say about giving glory to God. Yeah, two things I'd like to say. The first thing I'd like to say is there's a great text in Scripture that says whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Mm. And glory, I believe, means honour, respect, praise, giving credit to. Take, for example, uh, Matthew fifteen twenty nine to 31. And it says there that Jesus went and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up to the mountain on the mountain and sat down there and great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame the blind the crippled the mute and many others and they put them at at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking the crippled healthy the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the god of israel well what happened here first of all there was the crowd They beheld the wonderful power of God working through Jesus. They had a natural and an irrepressible sense of awe and wonder in their souls about it, as we would too had we been in that crowd that day. And they expressed that awe and wonder by giving verbal honour or credit, praise where these things were due, namely to God. And what the Bible means, therefore, when it commands us to give glory to God is that we should give him honour in all things, for it is due him in all things, whether in healing or eating or drinking, as I mentioned, or sleeping or working or playing or whatever. Even driving? Even driving, then, yes. How would you give glory to God when you're driving? Well, we obey the laws of the land for a start um, and just be very careful in your driving. What about Respect somebody, other people on the road. What about if somebody is nasty and they... Well, you, you, it's not how they act that's important, Len. It's how we react that's important. And I believe as a Christian, we would not react by doing the same things back. No, not at all. All right, let's move on to the next aspect of the message that comes from this first angel. 
It talks about the hour of his judgment is come. Now, in a court case, when does judgment occur? Anybody like to answer that? Well, well, I'll answer it myself normally then. Normally at the end. It's normally at the end. Yes, judgment the occurs case. near the end. And you only have to watch the news and you'll read about Archbishop Wilson and others who uh, have to face judgment. There are two types of judgment, and we need to understand this. The first type of judgment is called the investigative judgment, where all the facts are looked at and considered and a sentence is pronounced. But that's only half of the judgment. The other half is the carrying out of the sentence. Uh, if it's a time in prison or whatever, that's called the executive judgment. Now, here's a pretty wide open question. What kind of judgment is Revelation 14.7 referring to. Lydia, would you read that and then we'll see if we can get an answer. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. So it means the time of judgment is close to, to the end of our time. Right. But I think it also said that the hour of his judgment is come. Present tense. Is come. So, Lynn, don't you think that's the first part, the investigative judgment? Mm -hmm. He is in the process of examining and now, even as we speak, but also, of course, then there will be the executive judgment when he will carry out the final sentence. Well, you've kind of answered the question I was going to ask. Oh, sorry. I was going to <laughs> ask, what judgment do you think, the executive or the investigative judgment, does Revelation 14.7 referring to? I think it's the executive judgment. Okay. It's um, probably... The, the Bible doesn't actually give a clear answer about this, but I suspect it could be both. The yes. hour of yes. investigating yes. is happening, yeah. but the hour of the executing of the judgment is almost upon us. Okay. Now, why judgment? Well, judgment is there because we human beings are accountable we're accountable to God, and there are a number of places in the Bible, including in um, Ecclesiastes at the end, and a couple of other places which we won't look up now, where it talks about human beings being accountable. So there has to be a judgment to determine who will receive eternal life and who won't, who've been faithful to God and who haven't. Can I just jump in here for a moment? Just a thought came into my head. Yeah. Len, I don't know if I'm throwing a um, cat among the pigeons here. Um, it also says the hour of his judgment. I believe that could be referred in, in, in a couple of ways. The judgment that he is going to bring upon um, the righteous and the wicked. Or could it also be referring to his judgment? He was accused in heaven by Lucifer. And, you know, it's, it's almost like God is on trial here. Yeah. When you think about it, in, in front of the whole universe. And could it also be that it will be open to uh, everyone, that God's fairness, his justice, his mercy? Because he was accused by Lucifer as being unfair and unjust and unmerciful. Could it also be his judgment? 
Well, you could say that, Just and I thought. suppose in a special way it is. Mm. But we must remember this is a message that goes out to the world, isn't it? Just if I could throw another text there um, to understand a little bit more about this. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We are talking today about the good news, the gospel. Why do you think Peter is emphasizing on this, that the judgment of God has begun with us first. Well, what do you reckon, panel? <laughs> well, how about answering your own question, Nick? All right, because there was a, a bit of, uh, you know, confusion uh, about the judgment if uh, both investigative and executive judgment happens at the same time. I will just say in, in regard to this verse which I just read that actually those people who are following God and we're looking in when in the Old Testament how God uh, exercised his judgment upon his people, God will ask his own people first, how can you judge somebody who doesn't know about God before you judge those people who know God? That's a good point. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm, I want to, to throw out that the investigative judgment is to show, and by the way, it's another verse in the Bible that says that those loved ones, those followers of God, will even pass through that judgment. The judgment will have any effect on them because Jesus Christ is the one who will make them uh, righteous. Yeah. But those ones who haven't received God, they will receive the fullness of the executive judgment. And I wouldn't go too much probably in uh, this subject today because probably it's not time to, to develop this aspect of judgment. But in regard of the receiving the gospel, what we need to know is that now and today we have a very big responsibility. Yes, well, of course, this is all about the gospel. And the gospel is wrapped up in this very issue of judgment. Those who've committed their lives to the Lord and have accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made for them on the cross don't have to worry about the judgment. It's those who don't accept Christ's sacrifice are the ones who need to worry. Ledger, you've got something you'd like to share with us there. God is a God of justice and uh, end of judgment. We have few uh, verses in the Bible which says why the judgments needs to occur in matthew twelve thirty six it says to give account for every careless word that has been spoken, every deed, and every hidden thing in ecclesiastes twelve fourteen it says God will give to each person according to what he has done in romans two six it says, Judge nothing before the appointed time the Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of man's heart. Mm. The God who knows the number of hairs on our heads is going to judge the world, but that is precisely why the everlasting gospel is such good news. Judgment comes, but there is no condemnation for the faithful followers of Jesus, those washed, 
sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, because Jesus Christ is their righteousness, and his righteousness is what gets them through that judgment. Okay, well, that was that was very appropriate, what you've just said. So far, we've looked at the messages of fearing God, giving glory to God. We've been looking at the hour of his judgment, which applies to all people on the face of the earth, past, present, and those who are coming. But the, there's another message hidden in this here, and it's in the last part of Revelation 14, verse 7. Helen, would you read that, please? Love to. Revelation 14, 7, the last part says, And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, why would this be an issue to bring up at the end of time? Well, Len, I believe that people today are worshipping other gods. They're worshipping gods of materialism, pleasure, and uh, many people today actually accept evolution as the cause of origins. They are putting God aside. In fact, I had a discussion with someone just the other day and uh, tried to tell me that science had proven evolution. When we finally had finished our discussion, he actually came back and said, well, no, it's still a theory. And, and I thought, well, that is true because here we are at the end of time and we've got people that are turning away from God. He is our creator. And um, we need to accept him as such. And I think God is calling our attention right back to this in the last book of the Bible. I just wanted to add here, because this is a bit of a pet subject of mine, science cannot prove evolution. It's impossible to prove it, because to prove it, you have to be able to see it, to experiment with it, and it's... It's just not possible. By the way, you can't prove creation either. But I believe there's much more powerful evidence for us to accept creation. First of all, the Bible talks about it, and it talks about a creator. You know, I find it interesting, Lynn, that some people turn around and say, oh, yes, well, Genesis, throw that out. It starts off by speaking about um, God is the creator, doesn't it say? Yes. What, what's the first opening words? In, In the, the beginning? beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, and here we are here in Revelation, the last book. It's saying, worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And I just very quickly jotted down a few, while you've been talking, jotted down and looked at a few texts here. Um, you know, we start with Genesis 1, and then we've got Revelation 4:11, 4, 4, which tells us that God created all things. Psalm speaks a lot about him speaking, it was done, worship our maker, he made heaven and earth, he made all the heavens, the sea, earth, the seas. Nehemiah speaks about the host of heaven worshipping him. Jeremiah speaks out him stretching out the heaven at his discretion. Acts even talks about he made all things, he made the world and all things in it. So I think in an age... Um, that we are in today when the evolutionary hypothesis has captured the scientific world God is saying to you today and me he's saying come worship me as the creator mm. you know we were fashioned by a loving God we are his and I believe the fact that God made us is precisely one of the reasons for us to worship him he is our life giver 
Now, to add to this, I hope you've thought about this, why is creation important or a creator important in understanding the gospel? I think when you create something, you create, I mean, God created everything out of love. He created everything for our happiness, mm-hmm. for our beauty, to, to, to beautify us, to beautify the world and to make us happy. I think it's important also in this aspect that God created us, that is, human beings and the the world and so on, but God has a special interest in us. Now, if we just emerged from some slime in a pond or something like that that's quite often touted around the place, what significance would we have to God? Basically none. But because he created us, and as you said, Ledger, he loved us, and therefore he's interested in us. And let's remember, it says in the Bible, God created us in his image. Yes. Now, here's a question. Why do you think this verse isolates these particular things? It specifically names heavens, earth, sea, and springs of water. Well, I actually think it encompasses everything when you think about it. They're the big things where life dwells. Yeah. Life dwells in the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the, the fountains of water. I'm interested too when I think of that, that phrase, fountains of water. You know, God brought a fountain of water in the time of Noah, didn't he? And so, he is in charge of it all. Mm-hmm. In, in every part, every aspect of this earth that we are in, that's where life dwells. And, that, and God is in control. We've heard, and most of you have probably heard the expression, survival of the fittest. There have been rather significant debates on this issue about love versus survival of the fittest. And um, love comes from God, because God is love. The only reason Jesus came to this earth to die for sinners was because God loved. And so the everlasting gospel would lose its significance because it would lose the love factor. It would be That would be absent. Another question for you, Helen. How do you think the gospel has much greater meaning because God is the creator? Uh, well, God made us. God loves us as his creation. And God wants to restore mankind to a pre-sin state of existence. Mm. God wants to dwell with us. It was never in his plan for us to be separated from yeah. him. And so when you think about creator, creator and creation, is there any special reason why God should be worshipped as creator rather than redeemer? What have you got to say, Ledger? Because God should be worshipped as a creator because whatever he's done on this earth, we can marvel of, of the design and function and the way he created us and the way he created all the animals and the birds and, uh, you know, the symbiosis, the beauty and the variety in everything, the variety in flowers, the variety mm. in fish species and in the birds yeah. and the feathers that he made. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's indescribable. You know, our minds many times wander and we just cannot explain makes us realize what what a marvelous God is. 
Doesn't mm. it make you want to start singing How Great Thou Art? Yes. Yeah, it does. We're not going to, but... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, my dad was a very practical man. He was a farmer. And uh, I often heard him say, Oh, if only a man had another pair of arms. <laughs> and I think his father used to say that. And you know what? I've said it too. <laughs> it never happened. Because God made us with two arms... And we don't need to grow some others. And people have been wishing for more arms for years and years and years. Evolution hasn't happened. Helen, would you like to share with us something that you've got to say? Yes, I would. These truths and all other truths arise from the foundational truth of the Lord as the one who has made all things. By worshipping the Lord as creator, we're getting back to basics. We're getting back to the foundation of what it means to be human and alive and unlike any other earthly creatures to be made in the image of God. By worshipping the Lord as creator, we acknowledge our dependence upon him for existence mm. and for our future hope. And this is why I believe that keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath is also important. It's a special acknowledgement that God alone is our creator and we worship only him. Okay, well, that just about brings us to the end, but I'd like to wrap this up. Last week we saw from studying Revelation chapter 13 how the whole world basically will be forced into worshipping not God, but someone or something else named as the beast from the sea, referring to the head of the Roman church. Revelation 13 is a warning about the things that are happening right now and are yet about to happen to divert mankind's worship from God to something that forces rather than deserves worship. Revelation 14 focuses our attention to worship God who made us and who redeemed us from the consequences of sin. He is our maker and redeemer. He loves us and works toward the rebuilding of the relationship between himself and mankind. The gospel, the message about salvation, is the good news of how God has done his part in healing the separation between God and man. Revelation 14 verses 8 to 11 goes on to, worship, um, to warn people about false worship, worship that does not include the gospel, that is, salvation from sin and the gift of eternal life. Listeners, the everlasting gospel is for you. Act on it, and you'll be saved and have everlasting life. Reject it, and you'll have everlasting death. The choice is yours. Choose life. Yes, make it your business to choose life. Thank you, panel, for this and uh, to our listeners. Until next time, uh, we wish you that you will worship God, the Creator, and not worship the creation. May God bless you.